But it is an honor and a joy to be here with you. And my wife of 35 years this coming July, Marlinda, she sends her greetings and her love to you as well. And I had the chance of meeting your awesome pastors in Uganda. You know, who would have thought in Uganda to meet Pastor Tim and Cheryl Hatch and just enjoyed our time and fellowship together. In fact, even in uh, the, uh, we had a safari in, in Kenya. But my trip in Uganda started, actually I was in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, I was there teaching 100 millennials from 43 countries on leadership, people like from Poland, from Togo, from Brazil, Australia, all over the world, and then from there flew to Uganda, and then from Uganda to Kenya, and then back home to the States, to the state of champions, New Jersey. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's amnesia, I guess. <laughs> but uh, it is a delight to be here with you. May I just take a moment and highlight a few of the resources I brought with me? One of the books I wrote is titled Raising a Child Who Prays. Uh, my wife and I, we have two children, two girls, and they're adults now, but when they were little, we had to find out how do we teach them how to pray and give them that legacy. So it's one thing to leave money, property, and I don't knock that, but leave a God legacy as well. Amen. Activating the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What are the gifts? How do they function? And how do I activate them in my own life? Another book titled One in Christ, How to Bridge Racial and Cultural Divides. I function as a, as a diversity co consultant for the New York, sorry, not New York, but the National Basketball Association. Uh, I, out of that, because I pastor a church of some 70 different nationalities, and so got a little bit of uh, knowledge about what it means to get along with people that are different than yourself. And so I talk about those principles. Then here's something for family. This is us. How do you do it with our families that are weird, that are strange, that are, <laughs> that are trying, that are difficult? And so I talk about that. And lastly, this is a, 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 a drop card that has a lot of teaching on it called prayer, or the topic of prayer. It's called the prayer collection. And so I'm just going to put this over here, or... All right, thank you so much. And what I want to do is get ready for the Word. How many are ready for the Word? Good, 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 good. good. Well, I like to pray before I teach, so would you uh, bow your heart with me, please? Father, thank you so much for your tremendous kindness for assembling us together, not only here physically, but virtually around the world. I ask that this time of teaching, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come alongside of us and adjust our thinking, our view of the world, that we may be the kinds of people that Christ has called us to become. In fact, I pray this in his very name. Amen. Amen. I titled my topic, Let's Talk About Faith. So if you have your Bibles, click or open to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to be using the New International Version of the Bible to teach from. But uh, what I've discovered over the years is that meaningful conversations shape who we are. You get alone with someone and you sit and you talk and sometimes a conversation becomes so rich and so pivotal that we'll never continue on the same trajectory in which we started off the conversation on. And I hope this is one of those kinds of conversations for you. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 6 that, but without faith, and I know you're in Mark 2, but on the screen, these verses emerge. But without faith, no one can please God. We must believe that God is real and rewards everyone 
who searches for him. The Bible is telling us very clearly, you need faith. I need faith. We need faith. Doesn't matter how old, how young, how smart, or how you may feel as if you're not that learned, you still need faith. And when I first came to faith in Christ, I was 20 years old. And I was an atheist prior to that. So I had no concept of the Bible, no concept of faith, none of those things. I grew up in a, in a very liberal Methodist church until I was 13, 13 years old. And my parents said, if you don't want to go to church any longer, you don't have to. I said, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm not going. Yeah, and, and, and so I grew up not understanding anything about God. When I came to faith in Christ, at the local church in which I was a part of, I kept hearing about having faith in God. I didn't know what that meant. I went up to one of the pastors and I said to him, I said, can you please explain to me, what does it mean to have faith? And he looked at me in a hurried voice and he said, believe God, brother, believe God. I said, what does that mean? He said, have faith. <laughs> and then he walked away. He didn't even stop. I'm looking at him with this quizzical look saying, what in the world is this guy talking about? I mean, there's this great English preacher called Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon one day met a man. He said, sir, what do you believe? He said, I believe what my church believes. Spurgeon said, what does your church believe? He said, my church believes what I believe. <laughs> so Spurgeon got annoyed. He said, what do you and your church believe? He said, we believe the same things. And so he had no idea what this man believed. Such was the case, I, I was still baffled. What is faith? And so as I grew a little bit in my relationship with God, I developed this acronym that I want to pass on to you to help me understand faith. F-A-I-T-H. Faith, full assurance in the heart. When you have faith, you have full assurance, full confidence. You have full assurance in the heart about God, His abilities, His capabilities. Now, rub your hands together like this. All of what I've just said was the appetizer. Let's get into the meal. Let's get into the meal. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, 
and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. When I read the Bible, I always try to picture the scene. They're in this small fishing village of Capernaum. It's located in the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a very popular village for lots of reasons. It was popular because it was a thoroughfare for people when they were going through these, this area of Israel. In fact, the Roman government had a garrison there in Capernaum. They, and, and Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, had his, he was, his hometown was Capernaum, and his, his booth, the place where he collected tolls and taxes, was there in Capernaum. Two other disciples of Jesus lived in Capernaum, Peter and his brother Andrew. In fact, Matthew 9 verse 1 says that, that Capernaum was Jesus' own town. And Mark chapter 2, we just read, it says that he has come home. So Capernaum was the home base of Jesus' ministry. And so when we read it and we see that the story, it's all about the subject of faith. It's all about having full assurance in the heart. It's all about trusting God. It's all about watching what God can do through someone who dares to say, I know that God can do it for me. And I know that this is not some kind of theoretical concept or theoretical construct. I know this thing is real. This thing is alive. It's vibrant. And so let's take a step back and ask ourselves this question because if you're like me, I'm here and I want to be there. And there's some areas of your life, you may be here financially, but you want to be there financially. Or you're here relationally, and you want to bring your marriage to this place in its emotional and relational health. Or you're here in your career, and you want to be there. Or you're here spiritually, but you want to be there. And the gap, you can't fill it up by your, by your contacts, as they say internationally. That, that means by your strategic relationships. You can't fill it up. You can't fill it up by your resources. Your education won't make up the difference, and the only thing that makes up that gap is faith. And you need it. It's inescapable. And so there are things that emerge from the text that helps us better understand faith, and more particularly, how to apply it to our lives. And what I see emerge from this story is this. Action demonstrates faith. You can talk all you want to talk. You can say all you want to say. It's like my high school baseball coach used to say to us teenage boys. You know, we thought we were better than A-Rod and all, and, and all the, the old-time players and certainly better than the Boston Red Sox players. We thought, we thought oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong city. I mean, but, but <laughs> that was for another city, I'm sorry. But the idea, the, the idea is that he used to say to us, he said, don't tell us, no, he said, don't tell me, show me. Because we talked a lot of stuff. And so action demonstrates faith. When you read throughout the Bible, it always shows you people who used faith had actions to demonstrate their faith. In fact, when you read Hebrews 11, that chapter that's referred to as the hall of faith, because it lists all these people that did powerful things by using faith, exploits that they established through faith, it says for us, for example, in verse 7 of Hebrews 11, by faith Noah built an ark. Action. Verse 8, by faith, 
Abraham obeyed and moved when God called him to the promised land. Action. He obeyed. Action. He moved. Action. Verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies and escaped death. Faith is action. She welcomed the spies and she escaped death. Action. Action is inescapable to faith. In fact, faith is a verb. It is a verb, and a verb is a word that demonstrates action. It also demonstrates a state of being. It demonstrates trust, which is action. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct all your path. So, it's an action. Now, the backstory when you read this is the fact that we know very little about this paralyzed man. We know he's paralyzed, at least from the waist down, because he's unable to walk. We also know that he lives in the village of Capernaum, because when news about Jesus has come home, that's when this man started to make his journey to this place where Jesus was. We also know about this paralyzed man that he was not a recluse. Some people that are ill and have physical deformities that makes them, you know, limits their movement, they turn inward and get angry and bitter and disconnected from community and people and hard to deal with and hard to live with. Such was not the case with this man because he had friends. And the friends told him, news came to him in his home, in his isolated place because he couldn't get about that Jesus was at home. So we know this about him. And what we also recognize is that this man, he had faith. You may say, how do you know that? Because faith has ingredients. If I said to you, I, I, I can make a mean vegetable omelet. I mean, when I do it, as they say in some place, it'll make you want to slap your mama. <laughs> in the southern parts of the state, they said, you put your foot into that thing when you cooked. Wherever you're from, in Brazil and other <laughs> South American countries, when to show love, they, they spit into it. Wherever you're from, I make a mean vegetable omelet. But for you to have that vegetable omelet, it requires certain things. Eggs, vegetables. I'll put some broccoli in there. Onions, and peppers, tomatoes. You want spinach? Throw in some. But it's not a vegetable omelet if it's raw vegetables per se and raw egg. When we talk about faith, faith has ingredients as well. When I peel back the layers of faith and rip it apart and get rid of all the technical Bible highfalutin religious words that sometimes mask the essence of the thing, you say, what exactly is faith? What are the components? What are the ingredients? How can I then be able to say action demonstrates faith? How do I know I have faith? Faith has three ingredients to it. Knowledge, believe, and assent, A-S-S-E-N-T. Knowledge because you can't believe God for something that you have no knowledge about. You gotta have some knowledge. This paralyzed man had knowledge that God in fact is a healer. You cannot believe God to do something for you or do something through you that you have absolutely no knowledge about. So it's impossible. 
And so this man is in his home, and he begins to think and process mentally and cognitively that, wait a second, my condition doesn't have to be permanent. I don't have to stay in this, in, in this debilitated condition. God's a healer. He has knowledge of that. And when you read Mark 1, you know, Mark chapter 1, verse 32, 33, and 34, it reflects an earlier period in the village of Capernaum when Jesus came home at an earlier time. He went to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a high fever. Jesus healed her. After they took their evening meal, the scripture says in verse 32 and 33 that the entire village came out to, 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 to Peter's home and Jesus healed many that were sick and paralyzed and he also healed those that were demon possessed. That means then this paralyzed man, he had knowledge that God is indeed a healer. But knowledge in and of itself doesn't constitute faith. It's just one ingredient. The same way vegetables by itself is not a vegetable omelet. It's one ingredient. And so you need then to believe. Believe is when you have a working knowledge on. You, can, you, you have a confidence in. You rely upon. You trust in. Why? Because you have this reliability of the truth of the knowledge. You have a reliability of the, of, and the confidence in the knowledge. First-hand experience. Some of this man's neighbors were healed. Maybe some of his friends were healed since Jesus healed others in Capernaum. This was not abstract knowledge. This was not just something on just the cerebral and then the, the, the theoretical level. No, he had firsthand knowledge. Several months ago, I was speaking in Atlanta. And I was the night speaker at this conference. And so I came a few minutes early. I'm sitting in the front row. I'm just preparing. And this woman comes walking towards me. She's smiling as she's walking, just smiling. So I start smiling back. And so I figure she's approaching me, so she wants to speak, and it's easier for her to have a conversation with me if I'm in a standing position. And so I stood up, and when I stood up, we're, we're looking at each other eyeball to eyeball. So she was tall for a woman, and I'm um, short for a guy, but don't hold that against me. But, 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 you know, but, but I'm looking at her eyeball to eyeball. And she's smiling. She says, do you, do you, do you remember me? I said, no, I'm smiling back, no. I'm feeling really bad now. I said, no. She said, you don't remember me? I said, no, and I'm, really, I'm feeling bad now. She, she's making it worse. Because I'm thinking maybe, you know, <laughs> is this a senior moment, a pre-senior moment? Well, what's going on? And she said, I sang at your church about 20 years ago. Now I really feel bad. She said, maybe you don't remember me because when I sang there and when we knew each other, I was wheelchair bound. Her name was Delia Knox, D-E-L-I-A-K-N-O-X. You can do, look, up, look her up on YouTube. You know, the 700 Club did a whole spread on her, on the healing. What happened 22 years ago, her and her sister was driving in a car in the Bronx, and a drunk driver collided into their car, and what was the byproduct of that crash was that she was left paralyzed from the waist down. Our first campus, some 20 years ago, is a, a Romanesque cathedral, like you're in Europe somewhere, and it's over 100 years old. And so it, it doesn't have the ability for it to be constructed to have handicap ramp and accessibility. I had to have about four guys carry her up on her wheelchair 
up to five or six steps to place her on the platform so people can see her and when she sang. Tremendous singer. I said, what happened to you, Delia? She said, about seven or eight years ago, I was at this conference, and there was a healing evangelist ministering, and he prayed for me and then said, stand in Jesus' name. And the most uncanny thing happened. God healed me. So here's this woman that I knew who was paralyzed from the waist down for decades walking around in front of me in this conference in Atlanta, four-inch, three, four-inch heels, walking around, looking at me eyeball to eyeball, asking if I knew who she was. So now, not only do I have knowledge that God's a healer, I believe that God's a healer because my knowledge of Him has been tested by me knowing people that have experienced the healing of God. So now it's not a theoretical construct. It's not abstract. It's not something I read in a, in a book where I'm divorced from the, the, the history of the book or the history of the... I want you to see that's what this man was experiencing there in his home. He's saying that the ingredients of faith, knowledge, belief, and then it moves to a third ingredient, which is assent, to act upon it. Because you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can believe that your knowledge is accurate. You can believe that God's a healer. But unless you act upon that which you have knowledge and believe in, it's never faith. Faith is then when you deal with action demonstrates faith. Now, if we're going to applaud the Lord, let's do it right. Let's applaud the Lord. Come on, let's do it right. Now, there's a fancy $10 word called antinomianism. Say that five times in a row without stumbling, I'll give you 10 bucks. But antinomianism, it's a fancy theological doctrine that says, since I'm saved by God's grace, I no longer need to do anything. All responsibilities on God. That doctrine has been proven by church fathers down through the years and scholars as heretical. It's not scriptural. And what that doctrine does, it erodes away our personal responsibility for anything. Thankfully, this man never fell into that trap. Because had he fallen into that trap to think in an antinomian way, he's going to say, I don't need to leave my house. I don't need to do anything. If God wants me healed, he can heal me right here. But, and that's where many of us, we fall into that trap. You may not know the doctrine, but you're a byproduct of its trappings. Because you're not doing anything. You're not moving towards the goal. You're not moving towards the faith promise. You're not taking any action. Action demonstrates faith. This man, he called for some friends. Help me get dressed. I got to go to the crusade. Jesus sees a healer. I love the, how James, the practical apostle, tells us in James chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? And then we drop to verse 17, it says, Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? In other words, stop talking. All that chatter. And you know, there's no action that's commensurate with what you believe. That's not faith, James says. Action demonstrates faith. Imagine if you're in your kitchen and you hear your seven-year-old boy 
playing in the backyard, start to scream in this heart-wrenching way. And when you look out the window, you see he's a, being attacked by a cougar. A few months ago in Vancouver Island, Canada, a juvenile male cougar had the boy's arm in its mouth and was dragging him off into the nearby woods. His mom, Chelsea Lockhart, she sprang into action. She ran outside and grabbed the cougar by the mouth, trying to pry it open off her son. She was successful. In fact, listen to Chelsea's words when she said, quote, I knew that in my own power and in my own strength, I wasn't going to be able to pry its mouth open. So I started praying in tongues. I'm just crying out to the Lord, she said. Three sentences into me praying, it released and it ran away. Now, it's just like what the Apostle James taught. Action demonstrates faith. Chelsea would confirm that God talk without God acts is not faith. In fact, if you spoke to her seven-year-old son, Zachary, he would tell you, because of my mom's faith, I only suffered a gash to my head and a bruise to my arm from the cougar. You know, Jack, Zachary will say, yeah, my mom has faith. Because action demonstrates faith. That's what I want you to see. There's some of you, God wants you to be here in your career, but you're here and you're sitting around bumping along, bumping along, bumping along, hoping, 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 hope and faith are different. And some of you, you, you just have this mindset. Let me just maintain being positive. Let me maintain being optimistic. Positivism and optimism, though good qualities, are not faith. It's totally different. We ought to be positive. We ought to be optimistic. But keep in mind, when you're positive and you maintain just simply being optimistic, these are qualities that are born from within and stay within. They have nothing to do with God, per se. Faith is something that has, it, it starts in you and ends with God. It is a relational quality that God calls for. He responds to faith. He, 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 he answers prayers steeped in faith. He calls us to faith. He invites us to use our faith. He welcomes faith. Empathy doesn't move God. You being sad doesn't move God. As a priest, God is concerned about your state of emotion, but he does not move he's not moved by your emotional state he is moved by faith many of us we walk around and we think that God's like parents when we look at our kids and they walk around moping sulking and then we sit there and we just okay what do you want sweetheart what's going on that's not how God is he's not like that your sulking doesn't move God you're being oh God whining God's not moved by that he's moved by faith and so we must realize that action demonstrates faith. Now, as we go back to the text and we see emerging from the text, we also see another principle, and that is expectation fuels faith. Amen. Expectation is about anticipation. It's about looking forward to something. If you, before this service, told your child, your eight-year-old, sweetheart, after church, we're going to the ice cream parlor. I guarantee you that 
eight-year-old can't even think about what's going on right now until he or she, you know, until they're driving up, pulling up right there in front of Baskin-Robbins. And they're saying, where's my ice cream? And if you dare forget, or you take your car on a detour, and your eight-year-old doesn't even know how to get home, but I guarantee you they know how to get to the ice cream parlor. And if you turn in the wrong direction, you're in a whole lot of trouble because what you did was you created a sense of anticipation by creating expectation. When that paralyzed man started to get dressed and he's getting himself all dressed in his best duds, he's going to be with Jesus. Expectations fuels faith. As they're walking through the village and scholars agree that there were about 1,500 people that call Capernaum home in first century during the days of Jesus. As they're walking throughout the village, people, you can see nosy villages are there because people know everybody in small villages. Hey, where are you going? The man from his pallet laying up on this pallet looked up at him and said, hey, we're going to the crusade. Today's my day. God's going to heal me. And others may be there who were the, the naysayers, because you always have naysayers. They said, look, I heard about so-and-so. He's a friend of so-and-so. He's the third cousin removed from so-and-so. He tried to get healed, and he never got healed. Don't, don't, look, don't work yourself up. Just go back home. Don't get disappointed. And, and they had to work through that. And they kept on walking, and the pallet, you have two wooden staves, so there are four guys, one on each end. And it wasn't just four men, it was others along with them, but four were carrying them. They may have been rotating. And as they're walking through the village, they may have come upon other villages. And they said, where are you going? They said, we're going to the crusade. We heard Jesus has come back home. He's teaching. And we're going to hear him, and, and we, this is our day. I'm going to get healed. One villager may have said, hey, I just came from there. That place is so crowded. You can't even get into the place. On top of that, you know, outside, so many people thronging the house. It just swallows the house up. You can't even hear a word Jesus is saying. Don't even, look, look, I, I came back. You might as well, let me save you a trip. Thankfully, these guys didn't listen. They had expectation. And that's why it's so important. You need to know what it means to have this the sense of being full with expectancy of God's willingness to help, God's love for you, God's radical commitment to you that he's not willing to give up on you and you should not give up on him. Press your way through the crowd. I love what the great American pastor, historic pastor A.W. Tozer said. God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. Sad of us when we do that. The paralyzed man, he saw himself as a candidate for the impossible, and he pressed his way through. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, if God is your partner, make your plans big. Stop praying these small village prayers. We don't serve a village God. You don't serve a village God. We serve a God who's the God of the whole world. And many times we pray these small little prayers and these minuscule prayers, these little itty-bitty prayers, as if itty-bitty Jesus, can you help me with this itty-bitty thing? And I'm saying, stop that. Pray big prayers. If you're going to make your plans big, make them big. One church historian says, we come before a king, great petitions with thee bring. You don't go to a king with small petitions. God, can you, can you, can you stamp my parking ticket? No! If you're going before a king, ask for big stuff. You're before a king. 
So we learn from the text, action demonstrates faith. We learn from the text, expectation fuels faith. Now let's see this third principle emerging from the text. Agreement strengthens faith. There are some things that you need people to be connected with you in order to get accomplished. Your faith links up with their faith, their faith links up with your faith, and together there's this synergistic power that takes place. Mark 2 verse 4 puts it this way. But because of the crowd, they could not get him to Jesus. So they made a hole in the roof above him and let the man down in front of everyone. When Jesus saw how much faith they had, he said to the crippled man, My friend, your sins are forgiven. I love being around faith-filled people. It's inspiring. It's motivating. Even when my faith is at a lull, their faith is at a peak, and they pull me up. This man, they get to the house. When they get to the house, no, he's on the pallet. When they get there, they're shocked at the crowd. You may not even be able to see the house. Where's the house? People filling the house. Guys sitting on the windowsill on, on the inside. They're sitting there. And they're blocking the window. You can't even peek in. They're trying to peek in. You're trying to hear. And then you see people, they're standing in front of the door. Whole bunch of people. Some people are sticking their head around the corner. Others crowding up, filling the front yard around. Here's the paralyzed guy. And he's laying there. He's not of anyone of renown. He doesn't have any big name. He's not someone of status. He's not some of the bougie people in, the, in, 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 in this particular village. He's, he's a nobody. He's an ordinary guy. We don't even know his name. But he had faith. And so someone among the crowd says, hey, we're not going to stop here. What are we going to do? He's laying there. What are we going to do? We're going to go up to the roof. We're going to cut a hole in the roof, and we're going to lower you in front of Jesus. He's laying there. He said, cool, do it. See, I, you need people. You need people in your life that have crazy faith. They just, they do radical things that don't even make any sense cognitively. You say, how in the world do you think of that? I mean, I was in Kenya, and one of my first times going there about maybe 10 years ago. And that day was the day that they woke up that morning on July 7th. Seventh month of the year, seventh day of the year, on the front page of the paper, the words in Swahili said, Saba, Saba. I don't know Swahili. I don't know what it meant. But they told me it meant 7-7, seven, seven, but it was a, an, an anniversary of a 10-year political uprising, and it was political season again at that time. And all over the newspaper and over the media, they were saying, vote for your favorite Kenyan party. The problem was there was only one Kenyan party. So people were angry. This group of individuals hired these thugs throughout the entire country, thousands of teenage boys and young men, and they hired them to create mayhem throughout the country and disturbance just to create this political upheaval. In fact, I brought some pastor friends with me the first time ever going to Africa. Here they are in Kenya. I'm standing in the, in the area to check out of the hotel, and this guy, one of the pastors, runs into the lobby, and he's standing next to me. I thought he was joking around. I said, what's going on? And he couldn't even speak. He was out of breath. He was just pointing. He's pointing at the front door to the hotel. A guy had chased him with a machete to kill him. And so he's running for his life. He didn't know what was going on. And so that was the first thing. 
And then we're driving to the airport now. It's me and the host. There was just two of us in one car. And then other that was part of my team in the second car. And so as we're driving, these hooligans had knocked down, knocked down, knocked down traffic lights. They've knocked down you know, the night lights, the street lights, and, and telephone poles in the highway and blocking the road. We're on the highway, a three-hour drive to, to Nairobi, the capital where the airport is. And as we're going there, we get to one one stretch of the highway, there was, this, there was this telephone pole knocked across the road. So in order to go around it, we had to go almost sideways, and the, the, there was a hill, slight sloped area. So we're going around the, the, the pole, and we're going on the hill, on the lower part of the hill, and as we're making this turn to go back on the road, I looked to my left, there were six teenage boys running down the side of the hill with rocks in their hands about to stone our car. And so I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this now. Now I grew up in New York City, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sad to say prayer never entered my mind. I, 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 I'm sorry, prayer never entered my mind. All I'm thinking about is that, man, these Kenyans are going to try to take me out. If they're going to take me out, I'm going to try to take out as many Kenyans as I can. And so I'm sitting there, I'm coming up with this plan saying, okay, I'm going to take out some Kenyans. And so, and I'm thinking now, coming up with a strategy, my mind is working fast, and I came up with a strategy. When they get close to the car, I'm going to open the car door and swing it out, slam one, knock that one down jump out the car and grab one. And so I may go up to glory and here I'm standing in front of the pearly gates. I got a guy in the headlock. What's going on? What's going on? Uh, who is that guy? I, said, I don't know. He's a Kenyan. I don't, I don't know. And so here I am. So I'm, 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 I'm all messed up. And so here comes, you know, these guys are coming. And then all of a sudden, the pastor who's, the, who's, who's driving the car, he reaches his hand across my knees to the glove compartment. For the first time, some spiritual religious words came out of my mouth. I said, praise God. I thought he had a gun in the glove compartment. So he, he reached across my knees to open up the glove compartment. And what emerged wasn't a gun. It was a Bible. He took out a Bible. I yelled at him. I said, a Bible. I, I mean, I wanted to punch him. A Bible. I'm going like this, that's a guy, a Bible. And, and thankfully, he, he, he wasn't so unspiritual as I was. He had this two inch thick family Bible that had a black cover, and on the spine of the Bible, it said, Holy Bible. All he did was so peacefully calm, he held up the spine of the Bible to the windshield. And when the teenage boys saw the Holy Bible, they dropped their rocks because they figured if we hurt these guys, we mess with God. We don't want to mess with those guys because you mess with those guys, you mess with God, and they just left us alone. They dropped their rocks, and they went like this. In other words, go on. I'm sitting there, my heart's just... I couldn't, I couldn't speak for an hour. I'm just, it took me an hour for the adrenaline to come down. I mean, I'm just crazy. But thank God for someone who had crazy faith in my life, and there are people that you need. There are people that you need when you deal with agreement, strength, and faith, you need people in your life that's going to come up with crazy ideas because they have faith that's a crazy faith in God. Now, in first century you know, Middle Eastern society, the roofs were made of a composite of material. You know, it had straw, dirt, ashes, gravel that they compacted, compressed, and then placed it over the, you know, the, the wooden laths to make sure that no water could penetrate the, the, the house and the roof. Now, there was a staircase on the side of the house. And you know, if you're going to carry something or someone and you have to keep that thing flat, 
The guys who are going up the staircase first must lower the pallet. The guys who are on the back of the staircase must raise the pallet in order to keep it flat. And so here they are, they're going up the staircase backwards, and, and, and the guys who are you know, behind them, they're raising up the pallets, because if you get this thing you know, at a bad angle, the guy will fall off. He was there, he came for healing for the paralysis of legs, now he has a fractured neck. And so you gotta keep everything straight. They get up to the roof, and you gotta make sure when you, you don't, no one comes to a crusade with tools. It's like coming to the service. Did you bring your tools with you? You go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have to break into the place. No one brings tools. You have to make shift tools. You know, rocks, you know, sticks, whatever you see along the path that you can dig into this composite material of the roof. So that's first place to guide down because you have to make sure the opening is in the right location. You gotta put him there in front of Jesus, as the text says. You gotta make sure you can't put him back in the back, because if he's in the back and you open a hole, the place is filled with people. He still won't get healed. So when they put him on the, on the roof, now imagine, the guy has to have some height and some width to him. He's not nothing. And so let's give him a height, six feet tall, so the pallet has to be at least seven feet long. It has to be at least three, four feet wide for his shoulders to fit through the hole. You can't just drop him down. You gotta lower him down. And so I want you to understand that what has to go on. We read the text, we just, we gloss over that. No, it's there, it's there, stay there, look at it, exegete the text, read out of the text. And so you put the pallet down on the roof, someone's walking on the roof saying, Where, where's, where's Jesus teaching? Where, uh, guy, he's over here. Are you sure he's there? Yeah, yeah, come, come listen. Yeah, he's there. All of a sudden, they put the man down, he's laying on the other part of the roof. They're digging with rocks. Now, when you're inside and your debris has to fall somewhere, you're in the house. And you're in the house, you, you start saying, there's dust particles. And if you're like me, I'm a parent, and you have signals with your kids that are nonverbal. Because you're entertaining Jesus, you gotta be on your P's and Q's. You can't yell out, who's up there? Jesus preaching, you gotta shh. You have to have nonverbal cues. So the kids are all there, they listen, and then they see the dust. You see the dust, but you're the host. You go, that means go check it out. And you, they, they know. And so the little kid may have gone outside. He looks up. He comes back. Daddy, there are five guys on the roof. They're digging a hole in our roof. My roof. And you can't say anything. Jesus is in the, in the house. You can't say, get off my roof. I'm going to fix you guys. You can't say anything. You just shut up and just watch this whole thing. All of a sudden, you're seeing dust. You're seeing debris. Next thing you know, you have a skylight. I don't have a skylight. How do I get a skylight? And you see a sun, a ray of sun shining through. It is shining through in the house. And then, then, and you never know when you're dealing with preachers and they're preaching, you never want to mess with a preacher when he preaches. You don't know what they're going to do. In my 33 years of pastoral ministry, twice did I have public you know, you know, mayhem where someone just jumped up and said something crazy. Once when I was in Germany, once when I was in Nigeria. And both times when it happened, my New York kicked right in. I just, I just kick it, just, it, it's, it's there. You don't know it's there and then it just kicks in. I was in Germany, in Flensburg, Germany, in northern part. We pull up to the conference and there were hundreds of Germans outside with picket signs marching up and down. Picket signs before the, right outside of the conference. I don't read German, I don't speak German, so I asked my host, I said, what does the sign say? He said, don't worry about it. I said, what do you mean, don't worry about it? <laughs> I go inside and then come to find out that the, the signs were also saying, the signs were saying, God has nothing positive to say to Germans because Germans are so wicked. 
That's what Germans are saying of themselves. And so I'm in the conference, and so one guy, he paid the conference fee, but he was one of the irritants in the crowd to create trouble. But nobody knew. He paid his conference fee, came in, sat there during worship, didn't say anything because of the music and the noise of the music and all of that. And so during the preaching, I have my interpreter there. He, about five minutes into my sermon, he jumps up and yells out something in German. And so, you know, I just, my New York kicked in. I said, sit down and shut up. And so, and so, and so my, my translator, she just got scared. She just sat there, like just, just nervous. And then I ignored her. I said, I need two big German guys. Walk over to that guy, grab him, and throw him out of here in the name of the Lord. Two barrel-chested German guys walked over, just walked over, grabbed this guy, took him, and threw him out of there. And then I said to the crowd, let's give Jesus a great big round of applause because that guy just made our meeting exciting. The Germans are clapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you never know what's going to happen when you mess with the preacher in the middle of his sermon. And so they didn't know they're digging a hole in the roof. Thankfully, Jesus wasn't like me and threw the guy off the roof, threw him out of there. No, Jesus, when he looked up, the scripture says he saw their faith. power of agreement. Our agreement strengthens faith. And then Jesus, first things first, son, your sins be forgiven you. It wasn't about healing of his legs, not first. So you can have two good legs and walk right into hell. It wasn't about that. Son, your sins be forgiven. I want you to be in right relationship with God. I don't want you to be tired of living this life that's devoid of flourishing, that has lacks vibrancy because you've never been transformed. I want you to give an exchange. Give me your sin, and I'll give you my righteousness. Give me your brokenness, and I'll give you my wholeness. See, repentance is an exchange. Give me all your hardness and difficulty and your darkness, and I'll give you my light and my grace. And so this is an exchange. And Jesus said to the man, your son, your sin with kind, tender words, son, your sins be forgiven you. And I want you to know we serve this God that's so tender. He's so kind. He's so loving. He's so patient with us that even in our worst moment, even when we do things that are so bizarre, there he is doling out his love, doling out his pardon, doling out his forgiveness, doling out his ability to, to, to accept our repentance. And maybe today, before I pray for your healing, may I pray for your salvation. If you are watching by way of uh, online or here in the auditorium and you're wondering, what about me? And I'm saying to you, on your worst day, God still loves you. And he's madly in love with you. And he wants a relationship with you.